Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. Wonderful. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. And thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's a great format. Oh, thank you. Anytime. So I'm just going to dive right in. Where did the idea for Our Child of the Stars come from? Well, a lot of things have been mulling around in my head for a while, but it sort of came to me as a vision. I thought I'd set, write a Halloween story. And a vision came to me of a um, mother sewing a Halloween costume for her son and she's in a hurry because she's left it to the last minute it's a small town in the United States somewhere around 1969 and um, her son is very unusual and in fact the thing about her family is that she has to keep Corey hidden from the rest of the world to keep him safe he's an alien from outer space and the uh, passage I'm going to read you from the book is in fact that first passage that I wrote back when I had the original idea Wonderful, and it's a wonderful way to begin. Could we have a reading, please? Marvellous, thank you. So this is from Our Child of the Stars, the first book in the, in, the sequel, in, the, in the series of two. And it opens with Fall in Year Two. Molly sat by her bedroom window, sewing Corey's Halloween costume. Looking out, Crooked Street was warm in the soft sunlight. Soon the old porches would shine with pumpkin lanterns, Heads of orange fire with their savage grins. Long ragged witches and skeletons hung from the gutters and swayed as the wind ruffled the leaves of yellow, red and brown. She loved the sad beauty of fall, the possibilities as summer left and winter came. The Myers house had been full of Halloween for days. The three of them carved pumpkins while sugar girls wooed their candy boys on the radio. Corey rescued his first brave attempt. Now it sat in his bedroom with its quirky, jagged smile. The second magnificent globe would be shown off tonight. Jean and Molly had enjoyed days of Corey's endless chatter and making things from painted leaves and Molly's attempts to bake new things from her old Joy of Cooking book. Corey couldn't decide between a pirate and a sorcerer, so Molly said at last to be both. He flailed his arms in excitement. Then he saw how much gold braid she brought back from the shop, two double fistfuls, and he wanted all, 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 Mum. Red and gold, Corey never did half measures. There was so much small print in being a mother, like racing to finish the costume, because not disappointing him mattered. Molly's stitches were firm rather than neat. Corey got so antsy and up close she couldn't sew straight around him. She retreated to the bedroom with a chair propped under the handle. Jean thought that when he found time he'd mend the lock, but it never quite happened. She smiled, remembering last night the signal that passed between husband and wife. The chair jamming the jaw in case Corey came wandering in, as he still did now and then. Last night he'd slept, and it was just Jean and Molly. They made the old moves under the patchwork quilt with its wild pattern like leaves in fall. 
Childhood was a lost country, something well known, but now too distant. But then Corey came, their son, their miracle. And Gina Molly had found so many things again, snow angels and Christmas stockings, birthday surprises and fireworks on the 4th of July. Corey would squat to look at some tiny flower or stand entranced by the song of a single bird. He adored the day of disguises. He was made for Halloween and it was made for him. As she sewed, Molly heard him outside in the hallway. That eerie creak could only be Corey swinging from the fold-down attic ladder and the little pad, pad, pad was him running along the corridor and back. You could never mistake that tread for anyone else. Sometimes all went quiet, which might mean Corey was hanging off the stair rail upside down to see how long he could do it. Or he might just be rearranging his treasure table on his neat little room. He might be out of the attic window and up onto the roof with his telescope like some pirate up the mast. Corey often looked out across Amber Grove, gazing north to the forest with its strange scar. Safe, Mum, look, Corey too clever to fall, but she didn't think he'd fall. It wasn't falling that frightened her. Stitch, 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 the red cloth against her dark slacks. Only a truly formal occasion or the most burning summer could get her in a skirt nowadays. Their doorbell rang. At once, Molly put down the sewing and moved the chair from the door. She heard Corey scurry up the ladder into the attic. As she entered the corridor, the hatch shut. Corey had heard the bell and would stay out of sight. She walked down the stairs, taking care to look for signs, a left-behind toy, a roller skate. On the walls hung her best photo of Jean's parents, her nursing qualifications, the poster, War is not good for children and other living things, and the smiling portrait of Dr. King. What would the Reverend have made of Corey? The door had a peephole now and a thick chain. A lanky werewolf looked on the porch with his sister, a teenage witch, and a friend, an Egyptian princess. These older kids were from down the zigzag road, good kids, and they did not know that Corey existed. Molly adopted her public face, polite, not unfriendly, but not welcoming either. She picked up the bowl of candy and opened the door. You're a little older, for, you're a little old for this, she said, a little tarter than she'd expected. So I'm really curious. So the book was set in 1969. I'm really curious about what that makes possible. So what were some of the challenges or opportunities about setting it in the 60s? And how important is it to get the time right? Like, what can you imagine? What can you make up and what has to stay true? Yeah. Well, well, the writer makes a number of assumptions about how, how they're going to ca- to cover it. And I think one of the things that I realized very soon was that the 60s didn't happen everywhere the same to the same extent and to the same speed. So um, if it was a couple in the Greenwich Village hiding Corey, it would be probably rather different from being a librarian and a nurse living in a, in a small town. So, you know, it was also a time of great division and argument and big, big splits. I needed to, I needed to try not to have all the characters who are good being on the same side of those arguments, the Vietnam War, the changing role of women, um, the, the change of role of religion and so forth. So it, it was important because the idealism that came up in the 60s, the idea that we could do better and that things that have been needed fixing for a long time could suddenly be fixed, really, well, not realistic, realistically couldn't be fixed immediately. Mm. But that sense of possibility was important. It was the era of space travel. And of course, it seemed to me that having an alien land on Earth about the time that we landed on the moon was quite funny. And... Um, I think that it just needs, you know, there's a lot of attention 
you know, there's lots of details in it and the music of the era is mentioned in it. And But it is a world that's not strictly ours because Corey doesn't exist in our world, unfortunately. So as the books go on and the influence of aliens existing becomes more obvious, that nudges all sorts of things into slightly different, slightly different paths. So... I mean, it's a, it's a good time because actually a lot of the, a lot of what was going on in the 60s is perfectly relevant to ask us some questions about now as well. A lot of the questions we, some people thought we'd finished, we'd answered in the 60s have come back and have to be re-litigated or uh, re-debated. But it's, um, I mean, it's not trying to be a, I, I, I don't want people to think, it, I hope the, the book tells you it's not a pompous book. It's not a lecturing book. It's a story. It's a story about a family, but it's a story that I hope shows you know, ways that the world might be better, what we might do about it. Oh, I love that. With that in mind, could we have another reading, please? Okay, well, I think um, I'm thinking of doing excitement. Do you want excitement? I love excitement. So this is one of the things about the book is that because it's it's both got science fiction ideas in it, but it's also really a family story. There are bits in it that are really Hollywood thriller and exciting and this is uh, there's a strange disaster under cover of which Corey's spaceship lands with him being the last survivor Mm. and um this is meteor day which is when the town of amber grove gets blown up Uh, well bits of it are blown up no one in amber county would ever forget that cold spring day clear but with cloud dew from the north Everyone had their meteor day story, but Molly believed hers was the strangest of all. She ate an afternoon breakfast in the kitchen. When Jean left that morning without waking her, he'd left a children's book on the kitchen table about a talking walrus. He'd added a note with a badly drawn lady walrus that made her laugh. She smiled at the memory of how they'd made love on Sunday, gentle forgiveness. Then she went outside to fix the porch light. She'd been asking Jean to do it for weeks. Now she wanted it done. It was a day, an hour, a minute like any other. Then in a heartbeat, the light changed behind her. Molly glanced up and saw the meteor ripping open the sky like a flaming sword. Because she had no idea what it was, this strange blazing moon falling to the north, trailing fire and smoke and smaller fragments across the blue. I'm going to die. Her heart went wild and the light bulb dropped from her fingers to shatter on the porch. It's the end of the world. They've gone crazy and launched the bomb. It's the end, the end for everyone. A few moments later, noise slammed into her and the sky became thunder. She fell to her knees. Then came the impact and the world shot like a bucking horse. Molly grabbed the porch pillar and held on. A second roar, a second gale. She should have taken cover, stupid not to. She should have covered her face so as not to be blinded, but the sheer impossibility of what it was had stopped her thinking. Her head ringing from the noise, she tasted blood. A giant tree of black smoke smoke rose in the north. Whatever it was must have missed the town, but she had to check. She ran up the road, past those few houses before the road dipped down. She could look out at a picture postcard view of Amber Grove. Yes, the big strike was north, but smaller things, like a half a dozen comets, had struck right in the guts of the town, and now plumes of smoke were rising from somewhere on the green, near Jean's library. Her skin crawled. That's her husband, Jean. A siren wailed. Molly ran inside, dialed the library, and phoned. It rang and rang for six minutes or more, but she didn't give up, even as she wondered if she should drive in to look for Jean or report to the hospital. She's a nurse at the hospital, and uh, this is obviously 
why she's thinking of that. There'd been a chaos at the derailment when she was in in high school. She'd been a volunteer in the hospital, a candy striper. The memory told her the hospital would need everyone they could get. The first aid would be needed in the middle of town too. If this was the bomb, fallout was coming. Man's towering achievement was invisible poison in the air to destroy children yet unborn. Perhaps she should hide away. So what led you back to, you said this is um, the second, there's uh, two books in the series. Yes. And we're going to um, hear from the second book. This yes. But before we go, what led you back to Corey and his story in Our Child of Two Worlds? I think the thing is, is that the, the story as I envisaged it always went on longer than one book. And um, it, it wasn't actually pinned down that I would get to write the second book. But I think that the, without spoilers, Corey spends 95% of the first book being a secret. Uh, by the start of the second book, the whole world knows about him. People, you know, in rice paddies in China know that aliens have landed, uh, 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 the aliens have landed. And so it's a totally different t- type of situation, a totally and, and different danger. And secondly, um, not only are Corey's people who are peaceful and cooperative and loving and and you know in many ways have got their stuff together better than humans they're lovely but where are they he's been stranded on the planet for two and a half years three years and there are other forces starting to out in space which appear to be hostile to humanity so we have you have a new dilemma which is molly and gene want Corey's people to come Uh, they want Corey's people to come for the safety of the earth but if they come, they'll probably say, thank you for looking after Corey. We're going to take him back to our planet now. So, uh, you know, Molly in particular is very, very uh, concerned that, you know, she has found, she has started a family through adopting Corey. And, you know, it's a very difficult dilemma for her, which pan has needs a whole extra book to pan out. It, it's probably, I'm pretty certain it's two books, mm-hmm. because I think where I leave it at the end of the second book, all sorts of things will go on for all sorts of books, but it's not going to be quite, it's not going to have that spotlight focus on them. Oh, wow. So with that in mind, could we hear from the second book, please? Yes, of course. This is Our Child of Two Worlds. And I should just say, I always say when I read this, was one or two people have questioned it. Corey kind of is human. He's got two arms and two legs and a head and a body and so on. It's just that when you see him close up, he's quite noticeably different. And that's one of the things that's um, striking. He, he's not necessarily a face you'd take home to mother if you didn't know him. Amber County, the first week of November 1971. Corey ran through the woods, kicking dry leaves, wanting everything. He wanted so much to laugh with the joy of it, but he needed all his breath to run. At his heels, bound in meteor, grey shaggy curls and cheerful barks, in case any living thing could not guess they were coming. Dogs were such true friends. Close behind him, Chuck and Bonnie ran too, his human friends, and behind them the whoops and calls and crashing noises of the rest of the gang. Counting to 200 might not have been enough. The teenagers had longer legs, and this race would not last much longer. Run, Corey, run. His tentacles tasted the air to enjoy the damp kicked up under the leaves, the faint trace of a male fox, the dog scent that was not meteor. Among friends, he ran tail out, signalling enthusiasm. Corey felt the touch of cold in the air and enjoyed how November light was lower. 
He saw the trees that day by day were shedding their leaves, their glory of gold and flame. Corey felt the solemn presence of each tree. He felt as well as heard the startled birds rising and the little lives scuttering to hide. Corey wants it all, all, all. How good to have older children to play with in a dry day of running and talking and kind games. Soon Thanksgiving and rain and snow and dark dad's birthday and Christmas. Corey loved First Harbour, his home world of eternal gentle summer, but earth seasons were glorious. The narrow way twisted and turned through oak, maple and ash. Corey knew it well now, but still felt, felt ahead with his mind. A big shame that the woods behind his house, the woods beyond the fence, had been spoiled. There were too often people waiting for him, people who called for him or chanted strange songs or lit fires where they shouldn't. All the fuss scared away the animals. In those woods, people left tripwires to set off cameras, thinking Corey was silly enough not to feel the tripwire or pools of stuff so that he would leave footprints. People pinned envelopes in clear plastic bags to trees. The letters begged and threatened and asked and sometimes had money. Corey never opened them. The grown-ups took them and dealt with them. People knowing about Corey spoiled having fun. The rough scrubbing below the house was spoiled too, with its tents and trailers and wandering snoopers, the smell of latrines and coarse smoke. If he was spotted, people would come running. Crowds would soon gather, even if he hid straight away. Groups of humans could seem friendly, but be wild in their enthusiasm, unpredictable, dangerous. Better the grown-ups drive him here, a short way northwest, to be free in the woods where he was not known to go. The plan was to find an unmarked way down to Butler's Folly, the long-closed mill that was now a riot of creepers through empty wood windows, emblazoned with old signs and new that warned children not to enter and not to play. It was a castle of secrets by an overgrown creek. They had watched lizards warm themselves on summer days and fireflies dance brilliant green messages on summer nights. Dancing all together to the radio, teenagers and kids as friends, Zack had fallen off the wall and gained a most exciting scar. The wind changed and Corey smelled smoke, heard the whining roar of some machine, a double note. Something about that note tugged at his stomach, brought a touch of fear. As he walked, they, he felt his friends grow solemn. The noise grew and the smell. Animals hid in fear. Birds flew. Earth was a planet of many dangers. Corey was awful, care, always careful. A little further and they would see. Corey stopped his friends too and stared. Their castle of brick and stone was changed. There was a fence and a giant pile of long drain pipe. Great stupid machines were grubbing up the bushes, destroying the picnic places hidden from the road. Places where Corey had watched frogs spawning and wild bees bumble in the flowers. Where they had harvested berries and wormy apples or abandoned trees where they had photographed the eerie beauty of fungi. A tree crashed somewhere near and there were fires. Men were feeding them with damp branches, throwing up smoke. So before we let you go, where can we buy the books? So it's it's got national distribution. So any any bookshop should be able to order it if they haven't got it in stock. It's on all the usual um, national online retailers like Amazon and Wordry. And it's in all the usual formats. So you can get it as a book, as an e-book or as an audio book. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, most books aren't in most bookshops, but most bookshops can order anything and get it for you very quickly. That is wonderful. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, for reading to us and for answering our questions. 
Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.